0: If you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 2, that's where we'll be this morning, Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. Uh, it's, it's important to remember when we turn into, especially the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Gospels in the New Testament, that we're, we're dealing with a group of people who live in the Middle East. Shocking, isn't it, Right. So just think about this. I, I, I've said this before, and so if this is pedantic, I apologize, kind of, but it's important to remember so we understand social and uh, uh, cultural context uh, that this uh, the what Jesus is doing, what we're reading about here, it does not happen in, in America. That doesn't even exist yet. It does, but you get the point. It does not happen in Europe. That would have been considered the West. It doesn't happen in the East. That would have been kind of China and the Indochina region and beyond. It happens between the West and the East, also known as the Middle East. Middle Earth. Is that what? Yes. Almost, right? Like, it happens in the Middle East. What was happening at the time is uh, each area of the Roman Empire, which was massive at this point, had its particular chief god or goddess that they really loved and enjoyed. And on top of that, when uh, the Roman Empire would conquer an area, they were wise about how they would go about establishing their rule and reign In allowing religions that did not challenge their authority to exist allow people to manage their own religion in the Roman Empire as long as they managed it in a way that didn't threaten them being a part of the Roman Empire. And in that atmosphere, not only did you have the pantheon of Roman gods that existed in each of the chief Roman states throughout the empire, But now on top of that, each area that was conquered also had its particular God, gods, or deities. And in this atmosphere, there was a conversation constantly about who, whose God is more powerful. Uh, if you've ever spent time in the Middle East or in an area that is polytheistic, you've probably had this conversation before. Where you are beginning to talk about who Jesus is or who God is, and before long you feel like it's a conversation about whose God has more power. I remember uh, spending time in India. And trying to talk with people there and going into their houses and incredibly welcoming. We probably could learn something about hospitality from that culture. But coming in and uh, having you sit down and giving you dates and tea. It's always tea. And, uh, uh, and, and, And just having a conversation. And in each of their houses or huts or wherever you are based on, I don't know, whatever... They have this. Um, they'll have a box, and in that box will be their their God. And so, one of the ways to have the conversation is just like we do in America. You talk about uh, family, and family talks about life, and life talks about how you were raised and how you were raised. Did you go to church, or what do you believe? And just a really easy transition into the gospel. And so, asking them, "Tell me about your God's." Okay, now now let me share with you mine. And, and of course. They would mostly agree because you're a guest in their house and they can't say no. And so you begin to tell them and a conversation would ensue about, oh, my God is like that too. Uh, He can do this. And it's an interesting conversation because it's kind of like uh, uh, if you're not careful and don't know how to have those conversations in that place, it can almost be like the, like, two little kids get together and they're like, "Hi, how, how high can you count, you know? I can count to a thousand. Well, I can count to a thousand plus one. Well, I can count to a million. Well, I can count to an infinity. Well, I can count to infinity plus one. What? You know, it's like this, like, constant one up. And we, we laugh at that, right? Except uh, then, like, uh, Avengers Endgame came out and the conversation was, who's more powerful, Thanos or Captain Marvel? Anyone else see this online? Y'all are a bunch of losers, or at least I am now. And so I'll admit it. And so it was this conversation, who's the most powerful Marvel character? And the point was moot because they're not real and also because uh, Gandalf is superior over all characters in any movie setting. And all God's people said, don't let amen that. Um, But the point is, it was like a one-up thing. I was having a conversation with uh, these, these guys in India, and I've, I've had a similar conversation actually even at work uh, before I did what I do. I think most of the people I work with are saved. I'm a pastor at the church, so, that, you know, I think they are. Uh, but when I was not a pastor at a church, I worked with lost people all the time. They didn't know who Jesus was, and they had a similar conversation. Well, what's the What is the exception that Jesus has? What is the thing that sets him apart? What is it about your God that is different than my God? Because in India, most of the time, most of their gods heal, and most of them have some type of history. One may have six arms or seven arms or an elephant head or a lion head, and they all represent Something, But they are somewhat powerful, and they do have some in their uh, theology, some type of history that got to that point, and some type of relation, and all of that. But having a conversation with them, or having a conversation with someone I work with, here's the one thing that is very different about Jesus, about God in the Bible, that they just could not wrap their heads around. In fact, I was working with this one guy who I literally saw single-handedly grab another guy by the throat and hold him up over uh, across what used to be Pier 3T, where the submarines dock over at Norfolk, right? And just, I mean, this massive guy, and he was having a conversation with me, and he said, Tell me, Whitney, what is it that Jesus can do? Give me one of his miracles. And so here's what I said. I said, Well, here's the difference. Here's one miracle that Jesus did that nothing else can account for. You ready? Yeah, tell me, what's the difference? I said, Jesus died and raised himself to life. Oh, that's not the unique thing. There's people who claim that they're whatever did it too. I said, but here's why he did that. He did that to pay the penalty for your sin as a free gift because he loves you and he wants to be good to you. And in a moment, I watched, just like some guys in India, their face changed because that is different. That is too good to be true. Now, I'm telling you this story so that you know that Gandalf is superior, but more importantly than that, because you have to know that in Jesus' day, what bothered people about Jesus was not necessarily the fact that he was healing, He was going around healing all over the place. Sometimes people got upset at him because he was healing on the Sabbath, on days that they didn't think he should, but that's not why they wanted to kill him. Uh, People weren't upset at him because he was casting out demons. People were thankful that that happened, that there was a prophet or a teacher that they saw that had power and authority over the spiritual realm. They appreciated that. People weren't upset at Jesus because he was teaching God's Word. Now, over and over again, those who hear Jesus in the book of Mark and throughout the Gospels, they respond and say, he's teaching, but he's not teaching like the scribes. He's teaching like someone who has authority. So he did teach a different way and with a different, uh, with a different uh, reason behind all of it because he is God. What got Jesus into trouble, what was different about him than everyone else around him were not the things he was doing, it was the things he was saying he could do that had never been done before, that can only be done by God. Jesus was claiming that he could forgive sin. That's what got Jesus in trouble. That he would make himself out to be God, Because in their theology and in the Bible, only God can forgive sin. That's a true statement in Scripture. That only God can forgive sin. And so along the way comes Jesus, who's not only healing, who's not only casting out demons, who's not only teaching God's word, but also says, I am God and can forgive sin sin, and this invokes an incredible response from the people that get face-to-face with Jesus. And that's where we enter this text. How do you respond? I don't mean how as in in what way. I mean, no, literally, like, what is your response to the statement, Jesus forgives sin? And on top of that, or along with that. He forgives sin, not for everybody, but for all who have faith in him. That's the claim of the Bible. How do you respond to the reality that Jesus puts in front of you that he can forgive sin? That's what we're going to look at this morning. In fact, look at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and you'll see that what I'm saying is actually true. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, Mark says, And when he returned to Capernaum, okay, so in chapter 1, he had been in Capernaum before. Uh, Just a page over, or maybe on the same page, depending on how your Bible is set up, Jesus was in Capernaum, and he was healing the sick. Capernaum is where uh, Peter had lived. Peter, the apostle, before he was the apostle, was married and was still married as an apostle. Uh, And he lived there. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And then he went around and was healing and teaching the Word of God. And then the Bible tells us in chapter 1 that in that area, all who were sick and demon-possessed, people were bringing to Jesus so he would heal them. Well, at the end of chapter one, Jesus says, hey, I need to get away for a little bit because doing ministry and serving others for a long time means that every once in a while, you gotta get away. So he gets away for a little bit and then he comes back into Capernaum and word that he's back gets out because people need healing. In fact, look at chapter two, or chapter two continuing on. After After some days, it was reported that he was home. Verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. You see, they know his testimony. They know his history, his reputation. That's the word that he heals. And then if you can just get with him, if you can just get in front of him, if you can get in the house where he is, you also might have a chance of being healed. And he's going to teach about the word of God. Verse 3 and they came we don't know who they are yet but we'll know right now bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men these friends know Jesus' reputation they hear that he's back in the area they know that he heals they know that he does good to those who are like their friend and he and the they and the friend all five of them say i need to go to jesus will you bring me and they bring him before, uh, they bring him before Jesus, and here's what happens in verse four. And they when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So a little bit weird, this is unique. this uh, or rather this is um, Uh, uh, consistent with what has been happening in Capernaum anyways, except a roof gets torn off, and these four men get the paralytic to go before Jesus. But what's going to happen, or what's happened so far, is consistent with Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. But what's about to happen in verse 5 hasn't happened yet in the book of Mark. What Mark wants us to know as readers and what God wants you to know here in Scripture is that Jesus has not just come so that those who are paralyzed would walk or those who are in the context sinners would be given some type of grace from a holy man. You see, what you need to know about what's happening in the minds of these people is that when someone was paralyzed, or blind, or maimed, or uh, deaf, it was seen as an act of sin in their life or due to sin in their family. Now, we know that sickness, and being paralyzed, and being blind, and being deaf is not because of some sin that we commit. God is an affair God, which means that even though we sin, He also lets us live. That even though we sin and deserve death, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, on the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die in His grace. He let them live for a season so they would know His goodness and His grace toward them. But these people didn't understand it like that. Do you remember in um, John 9 when Jesus' disciples come across a blind man and he asked them the question, was this man born blind due to his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus' reply is, it's neither of those things. And so that God would be glorified. You see, in a broken and fallen world, these things Happen, But in verse 5, this is the unique thing that happens that has not happened in the book of Mark and will continue all the way through Mark 15 and 16 that they will crucify him for. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5, and Mark says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw that what they believed about him moved them to act in obedience to where, what he was asking them to do, That's the biblical definition of faith, not only believing the right things, but believe that acts in obedience to what God calls us to do. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, listen to this, son, your sins are forgiven. This is shocking to the crowd. Jesus has been healing. He sees someone that is looking for more than healing, but looking for freedom from sin. And he says to this group of people, I see your faith. I see your belief in me. Your faith has now caused, rather, because of your faith, I now cause your sin to be forgiven. That's what Jesus says. And this group has to respond to this. Because being forgiven of sin is only something God can do. In fact, look at how it continues on in verse 6. Some of the scribes, the people who were of the religious elite that knew God's word, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. They were watching as these men's faith moved them toward obedience and following Christ, that Jesus himself recognized that faith in them and said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. You see, they didn't say anything while he was healing, but you talk about forgiving sins. Now you're making yourself out to be God. And that becomes an issue. You see, at the heart of the question, when I ask, what is your response to the truth that Jesus forgives sins? Underneath the thing under the thing, your response is really, do you believe that Jesus is God? Because if he is God and he says your sins are forgiven, then they are. But if he is not God, then he might as well be saying nothing about Nothing. That if he is indeed God, then he says your sin can be forgiven. It's a word that has the nuance of being canceled or divorced or cut away. That your sin that is yours, he can cancel it completely. He can cancel the debt against you. If that is good, then it is the best thing since sliced bread. But since, I mean, honestly, no one... I don't know why people say that. Have you ever seen someone in the bread aisle super impressed by sliced bread? It's just sliced bread. So if that's not true, it's literally as awesome as bread. But if it is true, if it is true, then we have to do something about that. That if you don't believe that Jesus can do anything about your sin, your theology isn't just off a little bit. You don't know God at all. And that's what was wrong with these scribes. So what does it mean to be forgiven, to be free, to have the debt of your sin canceled? Because this meant a lot to these guys. In fact, it was so good, such good news to the guy who was in sin. And that's what the paralytic would have been seen as. This guy's in sin coming before Jesus, it was such good news to the guy that was in sin and such terrible, uh, offensive language to the scribes that they both react in an incredibly strong way that your sin has been canceled. What was owed by you in your sin is now cut away. We got to figure out what it means to be forgiven by sin. We understand as Americans what, um, if you're not an American, let me break something to you. Uh, Most Americans are in debt, (laughs) you know. Uh, In fact, um, on average, uh, this is just like a news article. If you are a finance person and you want to correct me afterwards, I'd love to hear it. Uh, But on average, my Google search said that uh, the average American has about $38,000 in their household of personal debt. That doesn't include um, uh, uh, house payment, and uh, that doesn't include student loans. It just means that, on average, if you are in debt, uh, you're like thirty-eight thousand. Some of you thought you were doing really bad. You're like, I'm average, you know? <laughs> like, you're welcome. Uh, but about thirty-eight thousand worth of personal debt. And so, let's pretend for just a minute that um, that you're you're in debt. You're in thirty-eight thousand dollars worth of debt. And you look at your credit card statement and realize, okay, I agreed to the terms of this credit card. No one reads it, right? It's just like when your phone gets an update, you just click I agree. But like, okay, I, I at some point agreed to these terms and I did not have debt. And um, then I, I, I bought things and, um, and I now owe because of the things that I bought. Uh, we think of debt as kind of a transaction. That I, I did not have debt. I then got some things that I didn't have money for, and now I have to pay that money back to the people that let me have the money as a transaction, an agreed-upon transaction. That's that's kind of what the idea of debt is when it comes to sin in Scripture, but not quite. Let's take it a step further. Uh, let's pretend that you don't have anything. And um, years ago, I uh, met a, a, a just one of the... Many stories of God's grace that stands out to me. Um, I met a, a woman, and she, um, for uh, the first, since she was 16 years old, she's now 42 or something, um, she was in uh, the entertainment business, and uh, she came to Jesus. She had uh, five kids uh, with uh, five dads, and she was weeping because she said, I don't know what to do. I am in so much debt because of the ways that I've gotten into debt, how do I make the next step in my life as a follower of Christ? So let's just pretend that you, by some means, uh, that is not appropriate. You had nothing, and maybe that's a little too extreme for you. Let's just pretend that you were, uh, you had nothing, and you had five kids to feed, and so you thought, I have good intentions behind this, but I'm going to beat up my neighbor and steal all his money because he has 38000 or she has $38,000, uh, and I need it. So you, you have nothing. You beat up your neighbor. You get $38,000, uh, and then you get caught. Okay, so now the debt is not just transactional. You have gotten debt by both uh, evil means. You took it. It wasn't yours. There was no agreement. You just took it. And then on top of that, even though you you took it with good intentions, you also broke the law. Like you're not supposed to beat people up and take their money. It's not a, I didn't check the law before that. I'll ask the officer when we're done here. Pretty sure you're not supposed to do that. And so not only did you, not only are you now in $38,000 worth of debt, you got it by evil means and you broke the law by doing that. Okay, we're getting a little bit closer to the biblical definition of debt. almost, almost. There, but let's go a little step further and pretend for just a minute that you, you were born a prince or a princess or you can be anything you want to the king over all things. And let's pretend for just a minute that, that your king, your dad, your dad has unmatched wealth. And not only are you in his family, But you look like him. His blood flows through your veins. When you look in the mirror, you're in his image. You think and act because his DNA runs through your veins. And he has chosen to give you you everything except his position. He says, you will inherit everything. And in everything that I'm giving you, your design is to rule and to reign In my kingdom that is also yours, except my throne. That your dad, let's just pretend, has more money than all the oil empires in the Middle East and all of the uh, uh, Wall Street bulls, I don't know what the term is, the guys who make a lot of money investing, uh, and all CEOs of every organization and all current and former presidential candidates combined. All right? Let's just pretend. That they have He has more money than everybody all combined. And then on top of that, let's pretend for just a moment that not only is your dad loaded with everything, but on top of that, the kingdom that you have been born into, the empire you've been born into, what you've been designed to do, the one whose image you're made in, that he has made you to rule with, He has more military and governmental authority than any government out there, than any guerrilla group that's out there, than any political organization. He literally rules and reigns it all. In fact, to go against him would be like a a child building a sandcastle at Virginia Beach at low tide to keep the tide from coming in, right? Like, we've all done that. It just, you're not going to stop it. It will destroy your sandcastle every single time. And so let's pretend for just a minute that that's what you've been born into. That that's what you're designed for. And there is one rule. If you leave me, you're cut off. I've made you to reign and to rule. Literally eternal, never-ending wealth Yours, a kingdom that never ends. You don't need money because I own it all. Let's just pretend for just a minute. And so then, what you choose to do with that is one day go to your dad, spit in his face, and say, I'm going to take my part and go. He says, You know the rule. You leave, you die. You leave, you're cut off. And you say, Forget it, dad. I'm leaving. And so he lets you go. And let's pretend you take the resources that he's let you take with him, and you blow it all on brothels and on terrible investments, and you go and join those who oppose him. Because even though he's unmatched, he's not unopposed. And so you join those who are actually his enemies, which in reality can't do anything against him Anyways, and you begin to help them in their game of trying to outflank and overthrow the king over everything, who is your dad. But you realize the moment that you leave him, your resources have been cut off. But continuing to spend more than he's given you, you have gone from a massive net positive to a massive net negative. Your friends help you, on the other side rather, supposed friends, help you not get back to your dad but further away from him. They take all of your money, they take all of your resources, they take all of who you are until one day you find yourself a glib reminder of the purpose that God has made you. That you look in the mirror and see that I was designed in the image of my father, but today I am a shell of what God designed me to be but a reality hits you you see I have taken all things that God that God has given me and I have squandered all of them beyond what could ever be measured I have taken all of the gifts that God has given me and I have wasted them on things that are unworthy of those gifts being used I have taken all all of the resources that God has given me and i have not only lost them all but gone into debt a debt that is incalculable incalculable that i will never be able to pay you see the debt of sin that you can be forgiven for that can be canceled against you is not a transactional debt i agreed to go into x amount therefore i owe It is not just a debt that was gained by bad means, but for good uh, ideas, I'm going to steal this, even though I'm getting it for a bad thing, for a good thing, and I'm just a little bit sinful in this by breaking the law. The biblical picture of sin from cover to cover is that you were not just against God, you were an enemy of God. You didn't just turn your back on God. Sin is the reality that you ran from God. You are not just uh, living a little bit apart from God. The Bible describes you as dead in your sin. You're not just someone who has lost a little bit of their edge when it comes to looks. You're, you're not someone in their 40s, you know, who's like you're you're there still, you know what I mean? Like you're, like, you're, like you like you you've just basically it's it's gone. You don't look like who you were at 21. Listen, I'm 34. I don't look like who I was at 21, right? You are a shell of your former self. That's how you are in sin. You're not new. You are old. You are not walking a little bit in light. You are walking in darkness. The debt of sin against this man is incalculable. And Jesus looks at it and he says, paid. Canceled. And the scribes look at it and say, only God can do that. And Jesus says, now you're getting it. That's what I can do. In fact, look at how Jesus describes his, the cancellation of this guy's sin in verse, uh, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question what I'm doing? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Here's what Jesus does. He looks at the sinner and he says, sin forgiven, incalculable debt, immeasurable, can't do anything of yourself. Ha, that's easy. I can take care of that. That's the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. That's the superiority of all things, over all things. This is what changes everything when it comes to who Jesus is and now how they're to respond to him. Jesus says, I'm God, and when it comes to your sin, it's easy to take care of. Now, now, it's not simple to take care of. I mean, we're in tax season right now, right? I mean, you think trying to figure out your own taxes is complicated. Imagine trying to figure out what you owe God so it could be redeemed or bought back of a lifetime of sin in ways you don't even know you sin. I I went to the store yesterday and bought three tomatoes. It was six bucks. That should be sinful in and of itself, right? Six dollars for three tomatoes. But I bought those tomatoes from a store that also has other products in it that I don't agree with what they are, nor... It was Harris Teeter, guys. Nor the way that they were sourced. Probably, as you go down, the ingredients from some insane process of, at some point, some product of a store that I supported... Of, of some type of slavery that was used to get those ingredients together. Every person in here, you have a phone in your pocket that has a metal in it that is only, you, only uh, retrieved from terrible minds in Africa. Y'all, it is impossible to calculate the amount, the debt of our sin against God. And Jesus looks at sinners and says, that's easy. I can take care of that. Now, it's not cheap, but it is easy for Jesus. Here's where this is beautiful for you and me. Jesus looks at a sinner, and he says, the depth and the breadth of your sin, I got it. I don't even have to question that. That's easy for me to do. He doesn't look at the scribes and say, you know what's really hard? Forgiving sin, but you know it's harder. You know, like, <laughs> his, his, his lens is, this is easy. You know what's even easier? Like, forgiving sin, easy. You know what's easier? Tell him to do to get up and walk, and then he does it. You have to know that God delights in doing good to Sinners if they recognize their sinners. Do you remember what I read earlier? The whole promise of the new covenant, which is like what you and I live under in Jesus, the whole promise of the new covenant is God saying, "I will make with them an everlasting covenant. And I will that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I'll put my fear in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will delight in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. God says with everything who he is in the new covenant under Jesus Christ, he is overjoyous to do good to you, a sinner. So how do we respond to this? The text gives us three, there might be more, but and there just happened to be three responses in this text. Like someone said, how are there always three points? I don't know. It just, in this one, there really are like three responses. Look at this continuing on in verse, uh, in verse six. These are the same peop- group of people. This all happens in the same group. You have some scribes. You have the crowd. You have the paralytic dude with his group. You have these three groups of people all in the same scenario. They've heard Jesus teach. They've watched him heal. They've heard him say the guy's sins are forgiven. Watch as these three groups of people respond to the truth that Jesus is God who just canceled all this dude's sins forever. Look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And Jesus knew that. And he said, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The first group are what I call the cynical scribes. Do you know the difference between a critic and a cynic? Like, we, we all need critics in our lives. My wife is a beautiful critic. She's beautiful and she's critical of me appropriately. And a beautiful critic. Just scoring all the points in that for statement that I can't say. Like, I need someone who's gonna look at me and say, what's going on right there is messed up. Not just in what I wear, I wear whatever my wife tells me to because we fought about it for the first however many years of marriage. And eventually I said, look, whatever you put out, I'll wear. I'm just, I'm, I don't wanna fight about it anymore. And she was right. I look better when, like, she helps me match. I don't know, right? Like, it's good. But on top of that, we all like helping me see, like, I see what you're doing, but I know why you're doing it, and that's not good. Like, she she knows that about me. Even when I'm trying to fool myself and everybody else around, she she's a good critic of my life. We all need critics of our lives as followers of Christ, but none of us need cynics. You see, a critic sees what is wrong but has a good intention. A cynic sees what's wrong, and even doubts the motives and everything about it, even if it's true. You see, these guys weren't just trying to ponder and think, I don't know. I guess I'm just going to really make sure that what's being taught here is lined up with Scripture. They doubt who Jesus is and what he's saying and everything about him. You know how I know that? They end up killing him for this stuff. So in your life, if you're in here today and you are just cynical about who Jesus is and that he can forgive sin, I want you to know I have no help for you. Only God himself can help you see and hear who Jesus is. I want you to know that if When you come and hear the gospel, your heart turns toward fault toward God. That is not how it could be. How dare God do that? I want you to know that God himself would like you to know you are condemned in your sin, but you don't have to be. Did did you know if you're a cynic that the Bible says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might believe through him. That he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe is judged already because they have not believed in the name of the son of God. If you are a cynic, I want you to know you are condemned by God, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be. You can be cut loose from your sin. Your sin can be canceled. The weight of it because of Jesus and his death and resurrection can no longer be counted to you, but it does get counted on somebody. You see, when you cancel debt, someone has to pay. If you call your credit card company and say, I just don't want to pay it, and they say, that'd be cool, Uh, then don't, right? How cool would that be? Uh, Then don't pay it. We'll take care of it. Someone paid that debt. You see, I want you to know if you are lost, you have to know that Jesus has made a way for your sin to be paid, for the penalty of your sin to be cut away from you, for it to be canceled out of your account completely, for you to be fully restored. He can look at you and say, I see your faith. Your sin is forgiven because Jesus is God. The second group that we see as we go through here. Look at it as it continues on. Jesus says, "Why do you question these things in your heart, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins." He said to the paralytic, "I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home." You know what the paralytic did? Okay, in modern language, uh, you know what the guy who just came to faith in Jesus did? He rose, he picked up his bed, and he started walking out. You see, for those who are forgiven for this man, walking was more than just simply being made to walk. This man who was seen as a sinner is now seen as someone who has been saved by God himself himself. And the matter of his walking is more than just showing he can walk. It's showing that God has declared his sins forgiven. Now look at me. That's what this guy's doing. He's not just like uh, meandering out. This dude is strutting out the place. Everybody's looking at at him like, that dude was just paralyzed. And he can now walk. Here's what this looks like if you're a forgiven follower of Christ. If you are a forgiven follower of Christ, I want you to know that the Great Commission is best fulfilled as you go and make disciples, but you're doing that as you go. God has designed you as a forgiven believer in Jesus, who has expressed their faith and been forgiven of sin, to walk, to get off your mat, like to get up and walk and show people, I was dead, I was in sin, and now I am alive. That if You know someone who is a cynic. The best thing you can do to show them about Jesus is tell them about Jesus and show them who he is. To tell them about what you believe about God and act according to those beliefs. The best thing you can do is have faith, right? But belief, believing God and acting in obedience to his word. You see, these guys can say a lot about what Jesus says, but they can't say anything to the paralytic that's not walking. Last but not least, look at the second half of verse 12, and then we'll be done. There's a confused crowd. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The nuance of amazed here was they were just astounded and confused as to what in the world just happened. And that's what we're going to end on this morning. Because I, I know that many of you in here know who Jesus is. But as we go into a time of closing and responding, I also know that some of you don't. I've been a pastor long enough to know that There are people in this room who still have sin as a part of their life. And who who still are defined by sin. Who have never come into faith in Jesus Christ. Who, If you were in here, you're more like the the scribes than you are like the forgiven man. But I also know there's a third group in here who's just kind of confused about how it all works. That's what this group is. You see, they're not quite in, but they're not quite out. They're not cynical of who Jesus is. They see what it is. They even believe who Jesus is, but they're not quite sure to commit just yet. I want you to know, you have found a great church if that's where you are. You found a great place to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to continue to figure out what this means, to continue to figure out who Jesus is is, and come to a conclusion one way or the other, but something you have to come to a conclusion to today, because this is the text of scripture, is that Jesus forgives your sins. Do you believe that Jesus can forgive you of your sin?